Greetings, you're on Deep Background for March 15th. Uh, Dave Elling with the Kansas City Star. Glad you could join us. Uh, Melinda Hennenberger of the Star's editorial board is also with us today. Melinda, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. We're going to talk about a fascinating subject uh, on today's podcast. Melinda has just returned from about a week. How long were you there? Two weeks. Two weeks. In Central Africa, South Sudan and Uganda, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sudan. And, and has been writing about her experiences uh, in the newspaper, um, you know, and uh, with all of the other uh, things we need to worry about in the world, it seems sometimes stories like that can be forgotten. But I think, Melinda, you've done a great job in sort of bringing Thank it you. to our attention. So how did you tell? walk us through it? How did you end up? on this two-week visit out to to, uh, South Sudan? So I went with aid workers for an outfit called the Sudan Relief Fund, and uh, we were on the trip. The purpose of the trip was to bring six and a half tons of medicine to people in Sudan and South Sudan. And, you know, just flying on that cargo plane of medicine and people coming to meet us and and, uh, unload the plane in itself was a fascinating situation. But as you say, you know, what's going on in Africa is not on our radar. And the U.N. is calling this, rightly, the greatest humanitarian crisis since 1945. And just part of what's going on there is a genocide. They keep saying they're on the brink of genocide. I don't know what it would take to push it over the line. A genocide is going on in South Sudan. Yeah, tell us how. Tell us why. I mean, tell us how South Sudan was created and what. Okay. So, Sudan, uh, the Islamist government in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, has is still attacking its own people. You've probably heard about the situation in Darfur. Uh, which they, goes back many which years. Which goes back decades, right. many decades. And those attacks are still going on. In fact, uh, Amnesty International just has shown that they are used, the uh, Sudanese government is using chemical weapons on its own people. It's the only air force in Africa that is attacking its own people currently. And they have been uh, attacking a place called the Nuba Mountains and other areas around there uh, for off and on for decades. So in uh, 2005, under with intense engagement from the U.S. government, from really from President Bush on down, and uh, someone who was very involved was our envoy at the time uh, from Missouri, John Ashcroft. John Danforth, what am I saying? Sorry. And he and President Bush were very involved and pushed through this peace agreement. Danforth was at the U.N. at the time, wasn't he? Or did was that No, later? he I mean, was, was the envoy. Special, yeah, okay. He was the envoy. All right. So they got this agreement under which the people were, some of the people of Sudan in the south of the country were able to declare their independence in 2011. Now, that still left a lot of the country that didn't want to be part of Sudan, like in the Nuba Mountains, the area I was just talking about, which is very isolated and persecuted to this day still under, you know, the thumb of Khartoum. But the south of the country was finally able to break free of their oppressors. And, and that was the idea, was it, yes. uh, Melinda, that yes. you would create this enclave, this area for... The southern part of the country right. would 
finally get to be free of what was really terrible persecution. Well, unfortunately, what happened only two years after the country, you know, with great hope, got its independence in 2011. By 2013, things had broken down significantly. There, the um, president of the country, well, I should go back. <laughs> this is a very complicated story, Dave. Um, there was a man named John Gehring, who was really the hope of what was to be South Sudan, who really was a person who could cut across, who could the tribal uh, cut across the, the tribal conflicts, who could cut across, you know, a lot of this is racial. Uh, and he was someone who had a unique leadership ability to bring all these groups together. He was killed only three weeks, I think it was, after independence, after he became the country, South Sudan's first vice president. He was killed in a helicopter crash. A lot of people thought that it was very fishy that that happened at that moment. We really don't have the facts on that. No one knows what happened. But he died three weeks uh, after taking office, and uh, things went downhill almost immediately. So you have these tribal conflicts. Uh, first of all, you had just a personal conflict between the president of the country, a guy named Salva Kiir, and uh, Mashar, the vice president, who uh, declared that he would like to become the president. So what started out as kind of a political rivalry turned into the tribal conflict of Salva Kiir's tribe called the Dinka and the newer N-U-E-R tribe of Mashar, um, even though there was no real reason for, for the conflict. So since then... It has devolved considerably, and when the peace process broke down completely this last July, that's when the U.N. started saying we're really headed toward a potential genocide here. You're right. Help us understand the, the South Sudanese conflict is among the South Sudanese, correct? It's not yes. from Sudan. Well, it's sort of, or is the, or does Sudan play a role? Omar al-Bashir, yeah. the still... Uh, the war criminal, he's wanted by the International Court in The Hague for war crimes, for crimes against humanity. Um, uh, many people have, I think there's reason to believe that he has a hand in encouraging Mashar, the vice president's um, conflict with the president and encouraging because he never wanted, the government in Sudan never wanted South Sudan to have its independence, so I don't... Even though they so, agreed to it Yes, on. so so I think that they're, they're certainly doing nothing to help and everything they can to, to do just the opposite, it, but the conflict is not just tribal at this point. You know, someone there was telling me at this point it's everybody against everybody. Yeah, I mean, it just, they're, we're seeing mass rape, we're seeing uh, forced starvation, we're seeing people hacked to death and their remains thrown in the river. Wow. We're seeing uh, villages and towns and cities completely emptied, only the starving animals left behind. I mean, it's a million and a half people have fled the country already since July. 
Uh, 700,000 of them have come into northern Uganda. And that was my story in the paper today, uh, the last one of the series. But can you imagine in the United States if 272,000 people of a different faith moved in down the road from you and you said not only was that fine, but give them all a plot of land, working papers, and share your water with them in the middle of a drought, and what else can we do? Right. I was struck in your story today about how the uh, people of Uganda have, in essence, said, hey, you sheltered us when we were That's f- right. fleeing. fleeing uh, Under uh, Idi Amin uh, four Idi decades Amin, ago. And therefore, we feel like we need to return the favor. Uh, but uh, I want to come back to this because we don't think that this solves the problem at all in South Sudan, right? That they're they're able to, it's just a temporary thing. Is this a religious disagreement? Is it tribal? Is it political? Is it, is it all of those things? You know, I I think it's uh, one of the refugees, a, a very impressive young man, 22 years old, who had been in university when all this happened. He had already actually been in Uganda, but he doesn't know what happened to his parents back in South Sudan. And he put it as succinctly as anybody else. He said, you know, it's tribal, it's no discipline in the army, no leadership in the government, and everybody against everybody. And it's poverty, illness, sickness. Sure, it's all those things. education. It's over... Uh, resources. It's really not religious. South Sudan is almost completely Christian. But it's not a Muslim versus Christian or not some only extension is, of that. No, not only is it not that, but the people who've taken them in in this one corner of northern Uganda are almost completely Muslim, and the people they're taking in are almost all Christian, which I personally found very impressive. Yeah. So how do we begin... First of all, there's the humanitarian crisis, right. which will which do, is huge, and then we'll come back to the political right. settlement. But what right. does the United States, in your view, need to do now? I mean, is it, you know, I remember when Darfur was, was right. and the world's attention was focused really on the starvation right. then, but it, it doesn't seem as if that's no at the top of anyone's agenda in a humanitarian way at all. No, so the humanitarian need is so great uh, the. United Nations is not kidding when it says this is the biggest crisis since 1945. So just for what's going on in South Sudan, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which whatever you think about the UN, the way they work with refugees is very impressive. And very important too, by the way. Very important. They only are 45% funded for the need of the people leaving South Sudan for Uganda. So what does that mean? What is the Need. What is the need? Is it water? Is they, it food, most medicine, of all shelter? All of what you just yeah. said, but the greatest need is water. They're in a drought. They're in a famine. You know, there's also a, there's a drought in that whole part of the world. There's a famine in South Sudan because of the vi- not only because of the drought, but because of the violence. Farmers, they're mostly farmers there, can't plant their crops. Right. So they're coming across starving, thirsty, the amount of water the UN is now able to give people is only two thirds of what a person, the water we all need right. every day. Plus, you can't water crops. I mean, you can't, you know, breaking a right. drought is a difficult thing. It is. So, to be 45% funded means the people aren't 
you know, they are dancing as fast as they can, and they are not able to keep up with the need. So on the aid side, you know, the UN needs help. A lot of these really altruistic groups work these aid workers who go there. And by the way, they live like the refugees. I was so impressed. They live in tents in this brutal heat, constant waves of dust from the trucks coming in. Uh, just like the refugees do, and they just can't keep up with the need. So on that side, there's a lot we could do in terms, you know, in financial. Does the United States need to do more, or oh, is yes. it more? Is it more? We the, all do. You know, the private philanthropic, you know, uh, rescue groups and the group you went I, with. I obviously. think it's both. I mean, yeah. that stuff is so important, but it's also a drop in the bucket when you're looking at this kind of need, and you know, as uh, the the commandant of the one of the refugee settlements we visited called BDBD said, you know, we're not doing this because we have to. We're doing it because it's our responsibility to humanity. And then he said very pointedly, and it's all of all countries' responsibility right. to humanity, and it is. And so if these people can let 272,000 refugees move in down the road, I I do wish we would think about ways we could be part of the effort. Well, right, and and as a practical matter, uh, leave aside the morality of it, which is compelling in and of itself, as a practical matter, when this type of crisis erupts, it tends to feed on itself for years and decades to come. That's right. And it it feeds terrorists, and it it really accelerates that kind of thing. Talk to us about the politics of it, though, because I think a lot of people— you know, worry about spending money in in places like Central Africa, in part because they think it doesn't really solve the region's political problems in which leaders are always corrupt and and fighting one another. I mean, is that do we have to accept that or is there do you do the humanitarian and hope for a, a recovery on the political side? I don't side? think we can accept a genocide. We've repeatedly yeah. said never again and we've averted our eyes and After Rwanda, I mean, one of the U.N. officials said one reason no one can call it a genocide is that that would mean we learned nothing from Rwanda in the mid-90s when, you know, a million people were hacked to death in the space of several months. And the world stood by, and I would argue that that's what we're doing right now. And uh, humanitarian—I personally would— wish we would at least consider humanitarian intervention. Right, and then worry about the politics somewhere down the road, which right. seems extraordinarily we tangled would, and difficult. It would be very difficult. I will not say that, oh, all we have to do is get involved. I mean, uh, when I talked to former Senator Danforth, he was saying, you know, we had so much engagement. The president of the United States was personally on this, and it was still very, very difficult. So he was— And not long-lasting, apparently, And not long-lasting. However, he said, you know what? For four years, a lot of lives were saved. Yeah, yeah. And that brings us to the current occupant of the White House, and— it does seem like, Melinda, that the attention of the administration is scattered on everything. Let's just sort of say that as a baseline. But in terms of foreign policy, it, you know, it's China, it's Mexico and Central America, Europe, Russia, certainly the Middle East. It seems as if, you know, attention being paid to Africa is virtually non-existent. At this point, there is no Africa policy. They're obviously in a moment of transition, but 
our people working in that area of the world don't know what's coming, nor any, does anyone else know where we'll land on this. I will say that I was quite surprised by how many people in the Nuba Mountains, for example, in Sudan, uh, really are expecting Trump to ride in at any moment and save them. They have a very positive view of him. Uh, not I, th- I thought that was fascinating in your story because they see him as a strong man in a way. They love the tough talk. They love even the America first part of that tough talk because that's how they feel about their land. So they relate to him and they love particularly, they say, you know, he hates terrorists and so do we. You know, we've been fighting these terrorists from Khartoum all our lives. So they, and they were very disappointed, I must say, in Obama, who, uh, because Khartoum uh, apparently uh, gave intelligence about ISIS to our CIA, we really did work with them to an extent that may have been real politic, but was very uh, damaging to innocent people there and who are our friends. Yeah. Um, But you don't get the sense, and that's probably a valid criticism of a lot of Obama's foreign policy, which was based on real politic and maybe not quite as... More so than his critics would have said. Right, and certainly not as... Or his uh, critics on the right would right, have said. Right, right, and it was much less focused on sort of mor- moral considerations, which I think is, you know, arguably true for a lot of presidents, but... Sure. And and, and, and just to give George W. Bush credit, he, he worked hard on Africa during he his time. He certainly did, and, and that's and, a lot of why people there, I think, are so positive about Donald Trump, because they think he comes from the same party as George W. He's got to be in that mold. If the worst thing that George W. Bush did as president was get us into Iraq, and I think it was, the best thing he did was his Africa policy, both on AIDS and just in getting involved there. But isn't the lesson from that that it takes sustained, concentrated political and humanitarian effort? Um, You know, there was an Ebola crisis in, in Western Africa which the United States concentrated a lot of effort on and more or less was able to contain that that uh, outbreak. You know, it was still a tragedy, but... You, it could have been so well, much worse. And, of course, impacted this country, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people were worried about. And, again, the lesson to me seems to be, Melinda, the way to solve these problems is to concentrate on them and spend a lot of time and effort and money. And by doing so, you made you may avoid a bigger cost later. Is that maybe one of the lessons in, from your visit or sure, not? Sure, I think so. I just think I, I would so love to see Trump sort of play against type here. I mean, there's nothing that said he can't surprise us by getting involved in Africa. Um, it, but it, we don't it's going to be very—we don't see it, but may, who knows what's right, going to happen right. with, with him. I, I think that we, um, may, you know— my hope, of course, is that something is happening behind the scenes that we don't know about yet. It, it would certainly be surprising, but uh, not Im- if he loves those who love him, he will get involved in yeah, Africa. I guess my, uh, you're right. Anything can happen. But a bedrock of uh, Trump's approach to politics, it seems to me, is uh, America first and humanitarian aid to another country by definition contradicts that approach. I mean, that's the biggest problem, it seems, 
for well, to, to me, for him politically. Well, it's not just about humanitarianism. Right. It's also about fighting terrorism. Do you fight terrorism at its roots by ignoring people who, in a lot of these places, I mean, why do you have humanitarian crises in a lot of these places? The government in Khartoum is a terrorist government. I mean, in Nigeria, the crisis is largely because of Boko Haram. Right. I mean, they're, the, these things are all tied together. So if one of his biggest pushes is is counterterrorism, and that's what we hear him talking about, then he should get involved for that reason yeah. alone. Final question. Why do you think we don't hear about this? I mean, why? if it is the, you know, once in a century... Deep sigh. <laughs> yeah, humanitarian crisis, and yet it... it you know, it's in our newspaper, but it isn't certainly on the front page or at the lead of the newscast or, or I mean, why is it, the, it, it does it need to reach a, a more critical mass? I mean, why, why don't we hear about these things? I don't, I don't know why we're not more engaged in that. I mean, one reason, of course, is that uh, is cuts in our business. People don't have foreign reporting on the level they used to. That is a fact. But it's also, you know, when when readers and viewers say that we should step it up, I say right back at you, readers, because, I mean, you write about Africa, and uh, the day one of my pieces on genocide ran, I couldn't help noticing that the lead story on our site getting the most clicks was something called Meet the boy who interrupted a broadcast with predictions of toots and farts. And I'm saying, well, you can't compete with that. So I think that's true. But also, doesn't our history show us that these crises sort of bubble below the radar and then suddenly explode in the public I, I hope that's I mean, going to happen. That, it's that's happened late. repeatedly in it's Ethiopia, late. in it's Sudan, really in Nigeria. You just go, no question, and people are dying today right. that need not die. It just I'm always fascinated by this idea that something clicks and people realize, I mean, if it's Bono or somebody stepping mm-hmm. out and sort of drawing attention to it, that does not seem to have happened so far. It has Sudan. not happened But if you yet. want to be a little optimistic... You can't imagine that that kind of tragedy would go unnoticed by the world community forever, right? Well, we certainly hope not. That was my hope in going there. Yeah, great. Melinda Hindenburger with the editorial board of The Star, back from Sudan and Central Africa. It's an important story. We're glad you could join us today to talk about it. Thanks for having me. Okay, you've been on Deep Background with the Kansas City Star again. My name is Dave Helling. Tell your friends about the podcast. Subscribe. Send us emails, questions, criticisms, anything you want to say. We're happy to hear from you because we think this is an important part of what we do. Again, thanks for joining us. You have been on Deep.